Welcome to episode 10 of Anatomy of Tone. In this week's podcast, we're going to dig into dealing with backline amps and how to overcome some of the difficulties that arise to showing up to a gig with a backline amp that may not be working properly or you haven't used before. I also want to discuss how learning orchestration can really help you produce and compose better. There are a lot of skills that we learn through orchestration, whether it's instrument balance or variety in rhythms and textures that we can apply to any form of music that we're creating. Lastly, we're going to check out the Jam Ripple pedal. This is a recreation of the MXR Phase 45 phaser circuit with some upgrades. One point I'd like to make about the gear that I'm using in this podcast is I'm not a turnkey operation, meaning I don't just get a piece of gear, use it very quickly, make some demos of it, and then get rid of it, move on to the next item. Uh, I don't really like to work in such a general manner. So everything that I use, I spend a lot of time with before I make a podcast about it. I want to get under the hood, really understand how it works in a lot of musical contexts. So I'll take it on gigs. I use it on sessions. I compose with it. I try to sound design with it. I really want to push it to its limits and really understand how it can enhance my creative output. I also will never comment on gear that I haven't used. There's a pet peeve of mine when people will comment and make generalizations about a piece of gear that they've never used. So I'm only discussing and will only ever discuss the sounds that I actually know and am familiar with. I'm going to add a short segment to each week's podcast where I talk about a moment in a song that I found really interesting or inspiring. To get things started, I'd like to talk about Tom Petty's You're So Bad off Full Moon Fever. Tom Petty is just such a gifted songwriter and such a deep love and respect for the craft. There's a really cool moment that happens in the chorus here, which I think is worth pointing out to songwriters and composers. The chorus is built on a three-bar phrase, which is unusual because a lot of times we feel things in twos and fours so immediately the fact it's a three-bar phrase makes it feel a little uneasy when he does something really cool is that the third time after we play the three-bar phrase he changes it to a two-bar phrase so we have two cycles of it being three bars then a two-bar phrase then we switch back to our GDC three-bar phrase to lead us to ending it on two bars of D. There's a lot of back-and-forth tension and release between these three-bar, two-bar phrases. It's really interesting. He's really playing with length of time in a chorus. So the chorus goes in the first bar G, D, then we go to two bars of C. So that extra bar C there at three really creates a tension to it. I think that's what he's really playing with in this part of the song. It's like this idea of, of tension and release. He repeats that three-bar phrase. The third time we go G, D in the first bar and C for the second bar, but this time it's only a two bar phrase. But now we're going to return to our three bar phrase, G, D, C for two bars. So that gives us our three bar phrase. And then we have two bars of D to end it. Pretty interesting, right? So it's three bars, three bars, two bars, three bars, and then two bars. That really struck me this week as I thought it was really clever use of bar length to create anticipation. If you go to my webpage, anatomyofguitartone.com, and you look in the menu, you'll see a link to Anatomy of Tone. And on that page, I will post a lot of blogs that just give in print some details or clarify some of the information I was talking about in some of these podcasts. So on there, I wrote a small blog about You're So Bad that I included a chart so you can see see in a little clearer detail what I'm talking about with these patterns. Dealing with backline amps, either bass or guitar or keyboard, can be really problematic for musicians because the I don't know, the quality level of the amp, or even if it's in a manner of disrepair or not, can factor into really changing your sound and your experience. You just never know when you go to a venue what condition the amp is going to be in, or if the amp is there that they listed on their website. So many times I've showed up and, oh, what's this amp? Okay, great. This is not the amp I wanted. I played at Tippy Tina's in New Orleans once. I showed up to a Mesa Boogie that wasn't on the list and not the amp I requested. 
and I just struggled with that amp. Mezaboogies make great amps, no, no problem with the quality there, and they definitely work for some people. They don't often work for me and what I do, and it was a difficult gig for me to get the sound that I wanted. It just wasn't right or appropriate for the type of music I was playing when I was there. And we were using backline amps because we flew in for Jazz Fest. So this was a, a gig on top of that. So I just had my pedal board and my guitar with me. So how do we get past these roadblocks of dealing with backline gear? Well, it's helpful to have a few tricks up your sleeve. So here's how I approach it. When I first get to the gig, I plug into the amp that is in the house. Well, first I'll look and see if they have multiple amps. I'll pick the best one uh, and hopefully it works. <laughs> I plug it in. Uh, I just plug direct in the amplifier. Now I'm not gonna plug into my pedal board first and then amplifier. Guitar, cable, amplifier, first thing. I get my volume up and make sure that everything's working. I check out the EQ of the amp. The key is to get the amplifier to sound really good first. After I get what I feel is a good bass tone happening with the amplifier. I mean, it's, I know I'm gonna put overdrives and fuzz and delay on, but this bass sound should sound good. It may take some tweaking. I may have to get aggressive with the tone knobs on whatever model of amp I'm using. I'm gonna use this time to really be extreme with the EQ knobs and see what the amp has to offer, especially if it's an amp that I'm not familiar with. A lot of times you get show up to a gig and you get like a deluxe reverb or a twin reverb, neither of which are my favorites, or a Vox AC30s, which I do like. There's so many variances in the AC30s, I always have to get acquainted with them a little bit. But at least I know those amps. Sometimes you show up and there's an amp that I don't like as much, like a, a newer super ramp or something like that. And I have to take a few minutes to, to get it to sound right because they just, they don't really sound like magic right on power up, right? So then I plug my pedal board in because now I know that my bass tone is sounding really good. Well, I mean, I wouldn't say really good. It, it, it could just be acceptable. So then I plug the pedal board in and it's time to move on to the next stage, which is okay, how do I make this backline amp sound better? I have a few pedals that I like to use as tonal band-aids on a gig. So these are pedals that are going to act as preamps always on. They're going to sweeten the front end of the amp a lot. So different ones may serve uh, specific functions or, or purposes. So for instance, sometimes if I get stuck with a twin reverb, it's just so much power on most stages, like even on a festival stage, like they're loud and they don't sound good. Like on two, they start to sound a little better on like four or so. And that's already so loud. They just have so much dynamic range. So these tend to be overly dynamic and spiky and bright. So I like to use some sort of pedal that is going to add a subtle amount of compression to it. Now, this doesn't necessarily mean I'm gonna use a compressor for that. I'm not necessarily looking for that vibe unless I'm doing a, a twangy country thing and I really want that, that, uh, that twang, but I still may have a preamp pedal on even if doing the country twang thing. So uh, there's two pedals I really like as a preamp and a front end of an amp, a backline amp that's not swell. The first one and my favorite is the Effectrode tube drive pedal. And this is a, a, a tube pedal, has three tubes in it and runs at actual plate voltage, just like an amplifier. So it's a, it really sounds like an amplifier. It doesn't choke the low end like a tube screamer does. And other overdrives sometimes will truncate the low end a little bit. So the, the tube drive doesn't do that. It is the closest thing that you can get to an amp overdriving. It does sound really great. And I know if I put that in front of a twin reverb and I turn the drive really low, so it's just at that point where the amp would be if I was able to play it at the volume that I liked. It's just a little crunchy. And I'm just going to leave that on the whole night. So now what that does is that not only does the tone of the pedal, the tubes, sweeten the sound of the twin reverb and doesn't make it so scooped and I guess you would say like spiky in its transients. It also adds a subtle amount of compression to it and warmth. So now my bass tone, which again, the tube drivers is going to be on the whole time, is providing me with more of my, my preamp sound for the amp. Sometimes when I'm using a really great amplifier, like the Headstrong Little King or the Victoria 3515, I don't use the preamp pedal. I might just use the tube drive to get more gain out of the amp but I'm not necessarily using it as a preamp pedal because those amps are amazing and they sound great. So 
I don't always need to use it in this fashion, but there's some times when I need to use the tube drive as a Band-Aid. I've also used the Timmy pedal. I think it's really great for this. And the Timmy pedal in itself hasn't been a pedal that I've been excited about as a drive pedal, but I must say that that pedal works fantastic as a Band-Aid, as a preamp in front of an amplifier. It just does the very light drive thing extremely well, and I don't find that it um, pretty much leaves my tone wide open, so uh, it doesn't truncate the low end. So I like that pedal a lot as well as a Band-Aid, or I should say as a preamp. There are some other preamp pedals out there that you can try. These are the two that I've centered on that I really love and I use, and particularly the tube drive because of the plate voltage thing where I can really get it to react and sound like a tube amplifier. So the Band-Aid preamp pedal is, is a big element for controlling a backline amp live. I find that's the emergency ripcord, and I will always have one on my board if I'm doing fly gigs or I'm going to a gig in the city and there's an amp there just because I don't know what to expect. Sometimes you show up and somebody's got a Victoria or something and you're like, this is sweet. I've had that happen a few times on gigs and I'm like, okay, I know I'm going to be happy on this gig, but often you're stuck with something that, um, you know, you're, you don't love. It's a tricky thing being able to allocate time to get to know an amp. And there's a lot of festival style gigs that we all do that don't allow time to get comfortable with the sound of an amp, say, you know, festivals or even a lot of clubs like in New York City there's a new band every hour so you don't really have that much time in between bands to get to know it so you have to do a bit of a of a quick process uh, to troubleshoot it's not a bad idea to maybe book some time in a rehearsal room and hopefully they have a couple different amps even better if they have some not so good amps spend some time with a new Fender Blues DeVille or a Blues Junior or you know, whatever amp, the deluxe reverb reissue, you know, which don't sound exactly like the originals. They're a little more harsh and play through like common amps that you would find like a musician's friend. Spend some time, try to get your rig sounding good to them. If you're a person that has the play through backline gig, you're going to have to get good at adapting to them. It's so much easier to, for me to plug into you know, my Marshall as a V20H or, you know, my uh, Headstrong Little King, my Victoria 518. I can get good sounds out of those just plugging the guitar straight into them. So that's not a challenge. If you're doing that at home, you're going to be given the impression that it's going to be real easy until you get to the venue. And then you have to deal with uh, with not only like an amp you don't like, but maybe it's not acting at its healthiest, you know. One other thing I've noticed is that if you can carry something, a brown box is really helpful on gigs when you're using tube amps. I would tour with one in my pedal board case because I found that making sure that there was consistent voltage going to the amp on different gigs was helpful, even with backline amps. So uh, if you you get stuck with the deluxe reverbs, and, and, and by the way, you might really love deluxe reverbs and they are great amps. They just don't always work for me, especially the reissues. This is music dependent. But even when using say, you know, a reissue tube amp like that, going to different venues, having the voltage regulated makes the amp sound a lot more consistent because one thing, and I will do an episode on the brown box, but one thing I noticed is that the uh, voltage varies so much between venue to venue. I mean, it was at, when I was in Nashville, I was getting uh, meters of like 126, 128 volts coming out of the wall. And in other places, I was getting like 119. So that's a that's a pretty big variance in voltage going to an amp. And the more voltage going to the amp, the brighter it is. So this affects the tone. And the less voltage, the more dark and sweeter it's going to be. So there's a sweet spot in either direction, of course, depending on your tastes. Uh, but I would definitely notice when there was more voltage and the amp would sound brighter and a little more shrill. So having a brown box to take the gigs, even with using backline amps, if you can carry one, definitely made it a lot easier to get consistent sounds from gig to gig using backline amps. So for that reason, I always carry one with me and I just pull it out of the bag, I plug it in, I plug my amp, I plug my pedal board into it. I know everything's getting plugged in the same place, first of all. And second of all, I know that um, everything's getting the same voltage. I can see it. I can, if, if the voltage is too hot, if I'm getting 124 volts from the power being supplied to me on stage, 
I can turn the attenuator back and get it down to 117, which is where I like it. And I know that there's going to be a little bit more predictability there with how the amp is going to respond to my rig and what I can expect from it. One other side note to mention here, I do have an outlet tester that I keep in my bag. Then whenever I go to a gig before I plug in, I plug it into the outlet my amp's going to be plugging into and I just make sure that the grounding is secure. You should most definitely especially do this if you're also singing and playing your instrument at the same time, guitar or bass. Make sure that the grounding is secure in your venue because it could be fatal and it's very dangerous if the grounding is not secure. I played a gig in Pittsburgh once. It was a outlet that they pointed to me to plug into and was kind of looking at it and it was in an old building and maybe seemed kind of sketch. And I don't know, I was thinking about it and the sound person saw me thinking about it is it wasn't the sound person that told me to do it. And, and uh, he, the sound person came over and was like, hang on a second, let's test this outlet. And I tested the outlet and it wasn't grounded. And, you know, I was like, no, don't, that's definitely not use that. It's totally worth getting more like 10 bucks or something. He's like, got them on Amazon to check. And it's happened at a few other venues too, where I've checked in and the ground's been reversed or there've been issues. So always be careful and just check what you're plugging into before you plug into it because you just want to prevent any um, any issues or any shock uh, or dangerous moments from happening. For those looking to advance their skills in production, I would highly recommend studying orchestration. Orchestration has made such a big difference in my life and my awareness of how to combine instruments, how to create different layers and parts. Uh, it's such a powerful tool. If we think about it, a producer in a lot of the genres, uh, popular genres such as like rock and pop and hip hop, they're really orchestrators in the recording studio, aside also from handling budgets and scheduling and uh, personnel, they, uh, in a large way, they're orchestrating the recordings and the arrangements. George Martin, for example, was a great producer for a number of different reasons. I'm sure his personality and the way that he worked with uh, John Paul, George and Ringo in the studio and the chemistry they had was important. But George Martin also had a background in classical music and orchestration. He did like, the string arrangements and the horn arrangements for the Beatles. And also you can really hear his imprint on all the Beatles records. And, and I was just listening to some tracks from Help today. And you just really can get a sense of his knowledge of orchestration and instrument registers and timbres and, and part writing. Not to say the Beatles didn't provide any of that, but there's just things I'm hearing in the recordings now that I know more about orchestration that I just know I can hear that he had his hand in because of the things that you learn from orchestration. Even though Brian Wilson wasn't classically trained, he certainly had a great sense and listened to a lot of music that had quite interesting orchestrations on them. Though so I think studying rock productions is important to, let's say, learning the craft of modern production. But by studying uh, classical orchestration, it can really even give you deeper insight into the many ways that you can create layers and variations in parts. One thing I see come up a lot in productions is I mentioned in another episode about stacking too many parts in the same registers. There's also like doubling and knowing when you do want more than one instrument in the same register to be playing amongst each other, right? So you can have a piano and a harp playing the same notes, but the texture of those two things together can really elevate the sound in a way that one of those instruments on its own wouldn't. And so this also applies to the rock world of layering synthesizers and in uh, layering different instruments. I mean, Quincy Jones comes to mind with uh, with mastery of this. Now, Quincy is actually a, a trained composer and orchestrator, and he has incredible knowledge of this, and you can hear this in so many of his productions, his, his ability to arrange slash orchestrate the sounds and the parts. One thing I feel like you learn through orchestration too is basically how to take 
maybe let's say like we have, I think for the most part, I'm always going to use a C chord as an example, but let's say we have a C chord that's playing and uh, the guitar is just arpeggiating it in eighth notes. But then we want to have a secondary part in piano, but we don't want to introduce any more notes. We just want to create more layers, uh, but with those same notes. So then let's say, um, you know, the, the piano is going to play a 16th note pattern playing C, E, E, G, right? Uh, but we want the bass to be in there too. And maybe the bass is going to play something slower. So it's going to play quarter notes playing C and G. In orchestration, you learn a lot of different ways that you can create these variations. And one thing I see with some younger producers or arrangers is that they feel the need sometimes for each of those parts to be uh, or introduce more notes than are just in the one of the term is I'm going to use sonority, which means a chord or pitch collection that we're using to derive the parts from. I've seen them almost like each part is almost too pungent or too complicated in itself. So you have uh, a lot of notes with uh, or, or, or parts with like added notes in them that end up rubbing against each other. So one of the things you can really learn from orchestration is how to create different layers, different rhythmic layers, essentially, and create variations using the same notes. So basically, they're all still playing the same chord, and they play really well together. And this is a deep topic, and I'm just kind of putting it on the map here so you're aware of this. But it, as you can imagine, it's one way to create density and depth in your productions without cluttering the harmony. You also learn things about a term that my orchestral mentor, Douglas Gibson, mentions uh, is called highlighting. So sometimes there's a note. Uh, let's say we have a phrase. We're going to go back to the eighth notes on the guitar. And uh, one of those eighth notes or one of those pitches in that guitar line just need more emphasis than the others. So you might use another instrument just to hit, let's just say it's the, you know, it's the end of every beat. We want to hit the end of every beat. So I might use another instrument. Maybe it's a Wurlitzer keyboard. And I'm just hitting the end of every beat just to highlight, right? To emphasize that. And it's going to be different than if I was just accenting on the guitar and playing it harder. I don't want a different texture there to add, I guess density isn't the wrong word, but it's going to emphasize it with a different color. So a lot of the instruments were thinking about colors. So I can use my knowledge of uh, orchestration and highlighting to think about how I might approach highlighting and which notes I highlight and what colors I'm going to do it. And colors is another point that we spend a lot of time learning in orchestration, what instruments blend well together. So for instance, like a clarinet and viola really blend well together. And you might not be recording orchestral music, but this is where you have to get in your knowledge base, in your mind, uh, an idea of what sounds go well together. You know, I like flat wound strings on bass and I like the Wurlitzer piano with a tremolo on it. That's a recipe or, you know, you like the sound of uh, a clavinet uh, and an electric guitar playing together. So there's a lot of different combinations that you can make that you know are going to blend well together or create a, it's like a recipe for a vibe. It's amazing to me, like how much my knowledge of orchestration influences my decision-making, even when I do like a surf tune or um, recording a pop song or hip hop track, I really use those skills a lot. I find out my, my productions come out sounding cleaner, meaning the harmony is cleaner. I don't have parts rubbing each other in an unflattering way. Uh, the instruments tend to be getting along a little better. Also, I'm creating contrast a lot more. You'll notice this, I think, as being instrumentalist. Like if somebody is a piano player, they're likely to play a lot more piano on a track than other instruments. Same thing if you're a guitar player. You're probably going to put more guitars on a track than maybe the track needs a meaning. Sometimes it's nice to have a color change. In the past, I have struggled with that a little bit where sometimes I would maybe just like guitar was the only color instrument. And sometimes say doing like fillers and fills in between the verses. If every verse just had guitar doing them, it sounded a little redundant. And now like I think about that stuff, well, maybe I should alternate it between organ and guitar or in the second verse, introduce a new instrument that plays those fills. 
creating variety can keep the listener engaged and feel like they're getting new elements of a story. I just wanted to share that because I've really been thinking a lot lately about how orchestration has impacted my life as a producer. This week, we're going to take a look at the Jam Ripple pedal. This is a recreation of the MXR Fees 45 circuit, but with some upgrades, in particular lower noise and also true bypass switching. Jam pedals are handmade in Athens, Greece, and the founder is actually quite a fantastic artist, and you should dig a little deeper on the website if you go to jampedals.com. They also make a variety of other pedals as well, but this week we're just going to focus on the Jam Ripple, which is a one-knob, two-stage phaser. Let's talk about the history of phase a little bit before we dig into the Jam Ripple. Now, phase was a term that took a little while to settle into its true meaning. So when people started using the term phase in the late 60s, they were kind of referring to flanging because they were uh, doing experiments or getting sounds by having two tape machines playing the same thing and then just kind of touching the reel on one tape machine just to, to ever so slightly kick them out of um, uh, sync with each other and you'd get this cool flanging effect. Now, they first coined that phasing, but later on that actual sound turned into what we know as tape flanging. And the term phasing still gets, I think, confused a lot, even in the pedal world, because there's vibrato, and then there's the univibe, and then there's a Leslie type effects, and there's phasing. They're all forms of modulation, but they all don't sound the same or use the same techniques to get their sounds. Now, they all share one thing in common, is that they were mostly trying to emulate the sound of a Leslie cabinet. Now, if you're not familiar with what a Leslie cabinet is, it accompanies a Hammond organ, and the cabinet has two spinning speakers in it that uh, that spin at different speeds, and it creates this weird, like, vibrato effect that we all have come to associate a lot with, like, rock organ and jazz organ. But Leslie cabinets are huge and heavy, so people wanted to find a way to get that sound, but in a package that they could use with the one guitar amp that they were already lugging around instead of having to take two large amplifiers. This led us to the Univibe, which came out in 1968, and people were going to recognize this from Jimi Hendrix and Machine Gun and, and several other songs, and he used it a lot at Woodstock. This was an attempt to create the Leslie sound, but it didn't really sound like a Leslie either. Even though maybe it can be considered a failed attempt at sounding like a Leslie, it came out as being its own truly wonderful sounding effect. Although some may put this in the phasing category, it doesn't exactly sound like what I would consider a true phaser, which would be, I would say maybe the, the poster child for phasing would be the Phase 90 from MXR. But the Phase 90 wasn't the very first phase pedal. Now, the very first phasing unit was actually built for a studio and like a rack unit. But the first phase pedal that came out was from Maestro, and it was designed by Tom Oberheim. Yes, the Tom Oberheim that created the OBXA synthesizer and the DMX drum machines, among many other incredible innovations in the industry, including the very first programmable synthesizer where you could save your presets, and also the very first commercially available polyphonic synthesizer. Tom Oberheim was quite an instrumental figure when it comes to electronic music and effects. The Maestro PS1 phaser was the first commercially available phaser pedal. This was a very popular pedal that sold quite a few of them and really set the fire on, on what we consider to be the phase sound. Following that would be the MXR Phase 90, which is also, even to this day, a very popular phase pedal. And later after that came the Phase 45, the Phase 90. Moog released a phase pedal eventually. And there's a lot of different phase variants on the market today, but some of the classic ones, of course, are uh, MXR, I think partly just because they became so readily available to many musicians that they use them. So the MXR and the Maestro are really two 
fantastic examples for early phase. One thing that separates phase pedals is how many stages of phase they have. So if we think of stages of phase, it's really, it determines the frequency in which the phase is altered, resulting in a wider range of tonal variation from dark to bright, right? So uh, it's, think of it as being like, how many different steps of dark to bright there will be. A two-phase stager is gonna have fewer variances between dark and bright, and a 12-stage phaser, such as the Moog, is gonna have 12 stages between dark and bright. So obviously the 12-stage phaser is gonna go from pretty dark to pretty bright. I tend to prefer phasers that have fewer stages in it because I often don't like it when it gets super, super bright, but you may be different and it's worth looking around the phase community to see what really works for your style. A phaser works by creating a series of peaks with a filter that is modulated with an LFO, which is a low frequency oscillator. So basically it's using an LFO that you adjust with the speed knob to go faster or slower. And then it's basically creating peaks with a filter adjusted by the speed of the LFO. One of the things that differentiates the phaser from the flanger is that there's a delay between the original signal and the modulated signal in a flanger. So the flanger is also modulated by an LFO, but we have a short delay between the dry and the affected sound. With a phaser, there is no delay between the dry and the affected sound. One thing that's really nice about the Jam Ripple is that it's a one knob pedal. So it's a great pedal to experiment with if you're just getting into modulation effects and you're feeling a little overwhelmed. You can get the Jam Ripple and just play with the one knob and hear some wondrous sounds and then you know start to branch out and get into more complicated effects such as a flanging or chorus. Let's talk about some well-known uses of a phase pedal so you can go and listen and get a vibe of what they sound like. So Hearts Barracuda is a great phase song. Lives Lightning Crashes, The Clash Jimmy Jazz, Van Halen Unchained, Led Zeppelin 10 Years Gone. Sex Pistols used a phaser on Anarchy in the UK and several uses on that record. Radiohead used it on the keyboards and fake plastic trees. Billy Joel used it on his Fender Rhodes on I Love You Just The Way You Are. So it was a popular effect both for Rhodes keyboard as well as guitar and drums. Uh, there's a lot of different ways that you can use a phase pedal. Also phasers were used a lot in funk music in the 70s. If we listen to the Isley Brothers, That Lady parts one and two, you'll hear phasing on the lead guitar sound. It sounds like it's a fuzz tone run through a phaser. And you could check out, just go through the library of a lot of funk tracks from the, the early to mid 70s, late 70s. And you're going to hear a lot of use on rhythm guitar parts and various licks as well. Uh, it's a sound that became quite associated with 70s funk. Before we get into examples, I just want to discuss my signal chain so you know how I was recording everything. So the synthesizers run into an API 312 mic preamp, which then goes into our Purple Audio MC77 compressor. And then I'm going into UAD Apollos and I'm recording with Luna. In order to get the synths into the API, I am using a radial DI box. I find in my environment sometimes I do just get a little bit of noise, so the DI box filters a little bit of the noise. With the guitars, I use a variety of different amps. In order to be able to switch through the amps, I'm using an Ampete 88S amp switcher, which allows you to connect all your amplifiers and the speakers to a switcher with buttons, which allows you to switch through different heads and speaker combinations and you still have to be mindful of the ohms of the speakers so you don't mismatch things but as long as you know what the ohms are you can switch say like you know a Vox AC15 into a Princeton cab or often I just use the traditionally associated cabs with the head but sometimes it's nice to mix it up and this allows me to switch through different amps a lot quicker on sessions so if I want to plug into the Plexi and then I want to plug into the Tweed and Victoria I have then I can switch through it quite quickly as opposed to having to you know move a lot of things around and, and cables. A lot of times I'm using a UAD aux which is the cab emulation. I do like miking real cabinets 
but occasionally it's just not practical. So when it's not practical, I use the aux, which I think is really great. Sometimes it lacks a little depth that I feel I can only get through a mic'd cabinet, but a lot of the times it's really fantastic and it's certainly great when there's times when being in an apartment or late at night when you have to record, uh, use the uh, the aux a lot. So that runs into the API, into the Purple Audio MC77, Apollo, into Luna. On the guitars, I'm using DR strings. DR makes my favorite strings. They're handmade in New Jersey, right outside of New York City. I just really like the way they feel and the way they sound. I think I've played pretty much every string at this point. And there's some other good strings. I mean, it's it's a personal preference, of course, and, and everybody's going to have their own taste. But I encourage you to try the DR strings. I just think they feel really nice. The consistency is really high. I don't think I've ever got like a bad pack of DR strings. Dodario strings, I've occasionally got a pack of strings that has a dud string in it, or even just the whole pack isn't really great. But the DR quality control is, is very high and the sound is very consistent. I'm gonna start this week's examples using the Jam Ripple with synthesizers, and then we're gonna work our way into guitars. The first example uses Sequential Circuits Profit 10, which is the reissue of the classic original late 70s, early 80s Profit. I ran this into the Jam Ripple. Let's check it out. <laughs> It was set to a fairly slow speed. I wouldn't say it was all the way down, but it was pretty close to it. So it was just modulating quite slowly. Example two is going to use a Dave Smith OB6 synth into the Jam Ripple. Now, one of the things that you'll notice about the Phase 45 circuit is it can get a little crunchy. Uh, synthesizers can really bring out that crunchiness as they tend to be more output than guitars do. So I pulled back the OB6 quite far, but it still is driving the phaser in actually, I think a really cool way. You'll hear it get a little crunchy and it makes sense if you think about it because as the LFO is modulating and, and using the filter to uh, to boost um, or notch certain frequencies, it's bound to get a little crunchy as that boost happens. You could really use this and manipulate this in a cool way depending on how hard you want to hit the front end of the jam ripple or a phase 45 circuit. Let's check it out. Through my experimentation, I found a really cool sound using the Jam Ripple at, I would say, I don't know, medium speed, I guess. Maybe it was a little past noon, maybe it was like one o'clock or so. What it was doing, again, with the Dave Smith OB6 synth is that it almost, it didn't really sound like a phaser. It almost like, literally like phase canceled out certain sections of the arpeggiated pattern that was happening, which I thought was really cool because it almost made it sound like an artificial panning effect. Now it wasn't panning left and right, but it just kind of gave you a sense of it uh, disappearing or appearing again. And I thought it, um, it, it messed with my brain as far as the stereo field. Check this out.
wanted to use a classic 80s brass type pad. This is coming from the OB6 into the Jam Ripple, set at somewhat of a, a slow to, to medium rate. I do have the detuning on pretty heavy on the OB6 to emulate a bit of a vintage synthesizer because the oscillators would somewhat go out of tune or or just be a little grungy back in the day. So uh, I did that to make it sound a little more vintagey and period correct. <laughs> Let's jump to another decade. I'm going to use the Mellotron M4000D Mini. I'm using the classic the violins patch and running that into the jam ripple. Save the most obvious pairing of keyboard and jam ripple slash phase 45 circuit for last. So the most popular usage of this is using the Fender Rhodes electric piano run into a phase pedal. And we hear this all over the 1970s. It's a big hit. Uh, Billy Joel's uh, Just the Way You Are featured phase on it with the, uh, the Rhodes piano. It's a pretty classic sound. I'm using Yamaha CP reface keyboard, which has the Wurlitzer and a couple of different roads on it. Uh, for the sounds, I really don't like using plugins that much. So I tend to use hardware devices as opposed to plugins because I like to instantly have sound even without a DAW open. And you could also take a plugin and run it out and reamp it through a phase pedal, which will also really help improve your plugin sound. So instead of using tremolo or chorus or phaser right inside, and maybe even like say the Arturia uh, plugins, which they make like the, the Rhodes and the Wurlitzers and stuff like that, which sound pretty good actually. I'm not a fan of the preset effects on them, but their core sounds are actually really good. So if you reamp them out and run them through some analog effects, it definitely makes it sound a lot more real. And you can even run it through a real amp. Keyboards running through amplifiers sound really awesome as well. And I always want to have access to that. So I always turn the amp emulation off of a plugin if I'm using an emulation and I run out and I run into some real analog effects and into real amplifiers. And it just really makes it sound that much better. And um, there's a roundness, it makes it sound more dimensional. So try this. Uh, check this out. This is the uh, Yamaha uh, CP reface, jam ripple into API preamps into a Purple Audio MC77, and I'm recording with Luna. <laughs> Okay, time to get into some guitars. I'm going to start first in the opposite order, I suppose. I'm going to use one of the most obvious pairings of guitar and phaser. This is going to be a Les Paul into the Jam Ripple into a Marshall Plexi with Vintage 30s. So pretty classic sound. I like to think of Barracuda as being a reference. I'm not exactly sure if they used a 90 or a 45 or what they used on that, but uh, still it's a phaser and, and this will get you in a little bit of that mindset. I did two different versions of the same riff here. The first one is a slower speed of the phasing and the second one I sped it up a little bit just to, to hear the same riff how it's affected by a faster rate.
For this next pairing, I kept the Les Paul, the Marshall Plexi, and the Jam Ripple. I added a Rat Distortion pedal after the Jam Ripple. Now, the Marshall was already crunchy, so the Rat is adding more distortion on top of the preamp and power amp saturation that's happening from the Marshall. It just does a cool thing. It almost acts in some ways like a fuzz, and you could hear like it, some of the notes almost canceling out in a weird way, and it's cool. It almost has a bit of a broken vibe, which I like. Let's listen. <laughs> to do an example with more of a room sound happening and using the jam ripple with the speed at a faster rate. So here we go, Les Paul, Marshall Plexi, Rat, Jam Ripple, more room sound on the mic cabinet. <laughs> We know that phase was a big part of funk in the 70s, so it doesn't hurt to do an example of a Stratocaster running into a Fender amp with the Jam Ripple. So this is a Fender Stratocaster loaded with FSC 59 pickups running into the Jam Ripple into a Victoria 35115 Tweed with a 15-inch speaker. Now I'm using the MP88S amp switcher to move between these different amps. Let's check it out. Let's hear a very similar vibe, but playing more of a single note funky line. to what a slow arpeggiated part sounds like. Pretty dry, so this is still the Stratocaster running into the Jam Ripple into the Victoria 35-115. And this time I'm cranking the compression more on my Purple Audio, which is an 1176 compressor, which I love compressing after the cabinet. It just does something different than if you were in a compressor pedal before the input stage of your amp. So let's check it out. What about using the Jam Ripple on just more of like an open chord strumming guitar part that you might find in as like the, the rhythm bed of a track? I'm gonna go for a higher gain sound now. I'm gonna bring the rat back into the equation. So Stratocaster into the Jam Ripple, and I don't have my guitar volume all the way up. It's probably in like eight, I would say. Uh, um, and the rat pedal has a pretty heavy amount of gain onto it that runs into the 3515. Same signal chain, not a lot of room sound on this. I am running into the Analog Man ARDX20, which is an analog delay, just to give a little bit more space, but there's no reverb.
For this last guitar example, I'm going to use the Stratocaster equipped with FSC 59 pickups into the Jam Ripple pedal that then goes straight into the Victoria 35115, which is really a Tweed Fender Pro amp. It has a 15-inch speaker in it, and it's very similar to a lot of the other Tweed amps like the Deluxe or um, the Princeton, the Harvard, but it's a little higher wattage. So let's check this out. This is more like an ambient-style guitar part. I would say most of the time I don't gravitate towards phasers. They tend not to be my favorite sound, but the two-stage phaser, like the Phase 45, I do find flattering and really helpful in situations where you have a guitar part and you need to create a little more dimension to it. It could just move things a little bit and it's subtle, so you don't get as many stages as say like, you know, the, the Moog phaser or the Phase 90 or Phase 100. So it's a little more subtle and I really like that. So I think if you're looking for a Phase 45 style pedal, this one is, I think quite affordable for what it is and it's just really made super well. I'm going to leave you with a composition that I wrote and performed this week called The Monarch Theme. I was going for a schoolroom piano sound and I intentionally recorded and mixed the piano so it sounded like it was further back in the room and somewhat lo-fi. I felt that that added to the melancholy nature of the composition so if it was too hi-fi I felt like it wouldn't have expressed the right emotion uh, to match what the notes were saying and the harmonies were saying.